0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: I want Britain to be the world's great meritocracy, where a country where everyone has a fair chance to go as far as their talent and their hard work will
2: allow. Switching away from this current system of lower-skilled immigration and instead adopting a merit-based system, we will have so many more benefits. It will help struggling families, including immigrant families, enter the middle class, and they will be very, very happy indeed.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. From Theresa May to Donald Trump... The leaders of the world are painting their visions of a meritocracy to benefit the masses. But does a meritocratic reward system benefit people in quite the way our leaders hope? According to today's speaker, meritocracy as a fair and just system of reward is a myth. Kwame Anthony Appiah is a British Ghanaian
2: philosopher and author of Cosmopolitanism and The Honor Code. So the word meritocracy was invented in a work of satire. The work was Michael Young's The Rise of the Meritocracy, published in 1958, and that's the first book in which this word occurs. It wasn't a sociological tract, it was a work of fiction. It purported to be an analysis written in 2033, looking back at the development of a new British society. In that then distant future, unlike the class society of the 1950s, riches and rule were earned, not inherited. The new ruling elite was determined by the formula, quote, IQ plus effort equals merit. And narrating from the perspective of that future, Michael Young's fictional alter ego draws conclusions from over half a century of fictional social experience. And here's what he says. Today we frankly recognize that democracy can be no more than an aspiration and have rule not so much by the people as by the cleverest people. Not an aristocracy of birth, not a plutocracy of wealth, but a true meritocracy of talent. So this is actually the first time, as I say, that this word is ever used uh, in print. And the book aimed to show what a society governed by IQ plus effort equals merit would look like, and the results were not pretty. Young's dystopian vision is of a world in which, as wealth increasingly reflects the innate distribution of natural talent, and the wealthy increasingly marry one another, society sorts into two main classes, in which everyone accepts that they have, more or less, what they deserve. After all, it's a meritocracy, everyone's got what they deserve. This was an England in which the eminent know that success is a just reward for their own capacity, their own efforts. As for the lower classes, their situation is different. Today, all persons, however humble, know that they have had every chance. They are tested again and again. If they have been labeled dunce repeatedly, they cannot any longer pretend. Their image of themselves is more nearly a true, unflattering reflection. The older-class systems were sometimes called systems of caste. My ancestors in Asante and in England had a status they did not ask for and could not easily escape. In this one respect, the old classes were like the castes of India. Occasionally, by some mixture of talent and effort and good fortune, you might rise through the ranks. Occasionally, through ineptitude or laziness or bad luck, you could fall. The great revolutions of the late 18th century in France and in North America began a long process of gradually replacing a hereditary ruling class. Napoleon may have reintroduced a monarchy, but as his Irish surgeon on St. Helena recounted, Napoleon saw his society, the one he had made, as governed by the ideal of the carriere ouverte au talent, the career open to talents, without distinction of birth or fortune, And this system of equality, Napoleon said to his Irish surgeon, is the reason that your oligarchy hate me so much. Now, as Michael Rung recognised, however, this ideal was bound to conflict with a force in human life as inevitable and as compelling as the idea that some individuals are more deserving than others, namely, the desire of families to pass on advantages to their children. As he said in that book, nearly all parents are going to try to gain unfair advantages for their offspring. And when you have inequalities of income, one thing people can do with extra money is to pursue the goal of giving unfair advantages to their children. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with cherishing your children. Indeed, there's something wrong with not cherishing them. But a decent society governed by the ideal of merit would have to limit the extent to which this natural impulse permitted people to undermine the ideal of merit. If the economic rewards of social life depended not just on your individual talent and effort, but also on the financial and social inputs of your parents, you would no longer be living by the formula IQ plus effort equals merit. Well, remember, this is all in the 1950s, but Young's apprehensions have surely proved well-founded. Consider the fact that between 1979 and 2013, in America where I live, the top fifth of households enjoyed a $4 trillion increase in pre-tax income, a trillion dollars more than came to all the rest. No amount of money or status can guarantee that your children will all end up where you are, to be sure. Only 37% of the children born into the top fifth will stay there according to the most comprehensive study of the United States now available. Still, in a book provocatively entitled Dream Hoarders, Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution observes, quote, there has been no increase in inequality below the 80th percentile. All the inequality action is above that line. Poor children who attend elite colleges in the United States will enjoy incomes close to those of their rich classmates. Yet researchers have found that many elite universities, including for example Brown, Dartmouth, Penn, Princeton and Yale, take more students from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the bottom 60%. American meritocracy, the Yale Law Professor Daniel Markowitz has said, has thus become precisely what it was invented to combat, a mechanism for the dynastic transmission of wealth and privilege across generations. To the extent that you can predict that disproportionately many of the children of the elite will, and disproportionately many of the children of the precariat will not achieve a position in the top tier of wealth, power, and privilege, you have something too much like the intergenerational transfer of status that marks systems of caste. In Markovitz's view, meritocracy now constitutes a modern day aristocracy. One might even say purpose built for a world in which the greatest source of wealth is not land or factories, but human capital, the free labour of skilled workers." Now, my point about Michael Lung is that he anticipated all this (laughs) in the 1950s. He saw what was going to happen. Writing later, at the start of the new millennium, he lamented that educational institutions had been enlisted into a newly calcifying form of social stratification. With, he said, an amazing battery of certificates and degrees at its disposal, Education has put its seal of approval on a minority and its seal of disapproval on the many who fail to shine from the time they are relegated to the bottom streams of the education system at the age of seven or before. What should have been mechanisms of mobility have become fortresses of privilege. Young looked at the educated elites who had come to dominate the British government at the beginning of the millennium and compared it with the 1945 Labour cabinet of Clement Attlee Ernest Bevin, the Foreign Secretary in that government, had left school at the age of 11 and worked as an errand boy and a drayman before he became active in the Bristol Dot Workers Union. Herbert Morrison, Deputy Prime Minister, left school at 14 and worked as a shop assistant and switchboard operator before getting involved in local council politics. So these were two members of the Big Five, a group that also included Stafford Cripps, who happens to be my grandfather, Hugh Dalton and Attlee himself, These, two sought to alleviate social inequalities whose burdens they knew from direct experience. They'd grown up with them. In other realms, too, Young saw an emerging cohort of mercantile meritocrats who, quote, can be insufferably smug, much more so than the people who knew that they had achieved advancement not on their own merit, but because they were, as somebody's son or daughter, the benefits of nepotism. The newcomers can actually believe that they have morality on their side. So assured have the elite become that there is almost no block on the rewards that they arrogate to themselves. Inequality rose as salaries and fees stored and stock option schemes proliferated, and the carapace of merit, Young argued, had only inoculated the winners from shame and reproach. Yet, if a new dynastic system was taking place, you might conclude that meritocracy has faltered because it isn't meritocratic enough. If talent is capitalized efficiently only in high tax brackets, you could conclude that we simply failed to achieve the meritocratic ideal. You would seek to push more rigorously for merit, making sure that every child has the educational advantages and is taught the social tricks that successful families now hoard for their children. So isn't that the right response? More meritocracy. Not according to Michael Young. He saw that there would be a problem even if the top class didn't exploit its advantages to give their children chances that were denied to others. The problem wasn't just with how the prizes of social life were distributed, it was with the prizes themselves. A system of class filtered by meritocracy would, in his view, still be a system of class. It would involve hierarchies of social respect, granting dignity to those at the top, but denying respect and self-respect to those who did not inherit the talents and the capacity for effort that, combined with proper education, would give them access to the most highly remunerated occupations. That's why the authors of the fictional Chelsea Manifesto, which in the rise of the meritocracy serves as the last moment of resistance to the new order, asks for a classless society. Let me read you the Chelsea Manifesto. The classless society would be one which both possessed and acted upon plural values. Were we to evaluate people not only according to their intelligence and their education, their occupation and their power, but according to their kindness and their courage, their imagination and sensitivity, their sympathy and generosity, there could be no classes. Every human being would then have equal opportunity not to rise up in the world in the light of any mathematical measure, but develop his own special capacities for leading a rich life. Class identities in a meritocracy reduce people to a single measure of worth, the argument runs, and only someone with a very limited vision could suppose that human worth reduces to a single measure. And so the manifesto proposes an alternative vision in which we recognize many forms of excellence. This profound commitment to the social equality of people with a variety of talents can sound quixotic, but it draws on a deep philosophical picture. The central task of ethics is to ask, what is it for a human life to go well? And the answer, I believe, is that living well means meeting the challenge set for you by three things. Your capacities, the circumstances into which you were born, and the projects you yourself decide are important. Making a Life, my friend the philosopher and legal scholar Ronald Dworkin once wrote, is a performance that demands skill and it is the most comprehensive and important challenge we each face. But because each of us comes equipped with different talents and is born into different circumstances, and because people choose their own projects, each of us faces his or her own challenge, one that is in the end unique. So there's no sensible answer to the question of whether one person meets her challenge better than somebody else. Did Albert Einstein have a better life than Mozart? The only sane answer is that Einstein was a better physicist and Mozart a better musician. I know what it is for my life to go better or worse, but it doesn't make sense to ask whether my life is better than yours, and that means there isn't a comparative measure. There's no single scale of human worth. As a result, a system of selection for jobs and educational opportunities cannot be designed by considering who is most worthy of those opportunities because, as Michael Young argued through his Chelsea Manifesto, there isn't a single scale of merit on which to rank people. Indeed, because each of us faces a distinct challenge, what matters in the end is not how we rank against other people at all. We do not need to find something we are best at What's important is to do our best, our unique distinctive best. Each of us, as the German philosopher Johann Gottfried Herder once wrote, has his own measure. John Stuart Mill expressed something like the same thought when he wrote in the marvelous third chapter of On Liberty that to have a character is to be a person whose desires and impulses are the expression of his own nature as it has been developed and modified by his own culture. So if you have a character in that sense, if you have your own measure, the most important standards you have to meet are distinctively yours. So the ideal of meritocracy, I think, confuses two different concerns. One is a matter of efficiency. The other is the matter of human worth. If we want people to do difficult jobs that require talent, education, effort, training, and practice, we're going to need to develop capacity to identify candidates with the right combination of talent and the willingness to exert them and provide them incentives to train and practice. So we design schools and universities and select people to fill the places in them. If the institutions are working properly, they aren't merely handing out credentials, which is always a danger, they are building human capital. We then allow for entrepreneurship, social and commercial. And we offer jobs with salaries and other advantages, interesting work, respect and autonomy in your job, vacations, pensions, health care, and we select people to fill those as well. We open careers in Napoleon's formulation to talent. But in the end, there will be a limited supply of educational and occupational opportunities, and we will have to have ways of allocating them. So here, I think, is a better picture. Money and status are social rewards that can encourage people to do things that need doing. It will be a matter of luck whether you inherit the capacities whose development will be rewarded in the society into which you're born, and of more luck whether the capacities you actually develop turn out to be highly rewarded. You can respond to messages from the market and seek training, of course, and a well-designed society will elicit and deploy developed talent efficiently. But I know that my relatively high place and the current system of class in Ghana, where I grew up, would have been insecure in 19th century Asante since I am confident that I did not inherit the temperament of a successful general, and successful generals were the people who did best in 19th century Asante. Einstein's mathematical and physical intuitions wouldn't have been much use if he had lived among the Amazonian NUCAC who didn't have writing. And Mozart's success would have been unlikely in a society where the only musical instrument was the drum. The English poet Thomas Gray, in his well-loved 1751 elegy written in a country Churchyard, churchyard, wrote about the talent wasted in a society that fails to train all its young. Full many a gem of purest ray serene the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen, and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Grey society had not, of course, achieved universal education, let alone imagined the removal of barriers to success based purely on accidents of birth. It was still a profoundly classed society. So, he wondered, were there below the gravestones some mute, inglorious Miltons, or some Cromwells, guiltless of their country's blood? The vista of the country churchyard may tempt us to suppose that in the absence of penury and restraint, people offered adequate educations will find a level set by their natural talents. Each natural poet will find her inner Milton. Each tyrant is waiting inner Cromwell. What's missing here, though, is the massive contingency of human life. To prepare the next Einstein, you need to know what talents it will take to make the next great breakthroughs in physics. But if we knew that, we wouldn't need the next Einstein. I have relished my life in philosophy, which began, I think, by the pure chance of having a few friends and a couple of teachers whom I met at a moment in my life when I was thinking about my religious faith and my place in the world. One reason I could read and appreciate Kant, Camus, Sartre and Eyer, who were the people that I came across first in philosophy, is that I had spent a great deal of my childhood reading books, some of them quite challenging, from my parents' library, at my mother's urging but a different school, different friends, different parents, a different library, or no library at all, and I would have had a different life. So I love the life I have happened upon, but there are surely many other lives I could have lived and loved. And most people would have multifarious, possible, rewarding lives, if we made a world that respected a life well lived. The social rewards of wealth and honor are inevitably going to be unequally shared because that's the only way they can serve their role as incentives for human behavior. But we don't need to deny the dignity of those whose luck in the genetic lottery and in the historical contingencies of their situation has left them less rewarded. However the dice fall, people will inevitably want to share both money and status with those they love seeking to get their children financial and social rewards. Inheritance laws permit us to transfer money to our children. Class lets us transfer status through the educational system. But we shouldn't secure our children's advantages in a way that denies a decent life to the children of others. Each child should have access to a decent education, suitable to her talents and her choices. Each should be able to regard him or herself with self-respect. Historically, we've used inheritance taxes to help even out the opportunities because while being able to give money to your children incentivizes a parent, it doesn't incentivize the child. Further, democratizing the opportunities for advancement is something we know how to do, even if in the current state of politics in Britain and the United States, it's very unlikely that anyone's going to try and do it. But we also need to work to do something that I think we do not yet know quite how to do, which is to eradicate contempt for those who are disfavored by an ethic of effortful competition. It is good sense to appoint individual people to jobs on their merit," Young wrote. It is the opposite when those who are judged to have merit of a particular kind harden into a new social class without room in it for others. The goal isn't to eradicate hierarchy and to turn every mountain into a salt flat. We live in a plenitude of incommensurable hierarchies and the circulation of social esteem will always advantage the better novelist, the more important mathematician, the savvier businessman, the faster runner, the more effective social entrepreneur. But class identities don't have to internalize these injuries of class. It remains an urgent collective endeavor to revise the ways we think about human worth in the services of moral equality. Thank you.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, what do you think? Is meritocracy bound to fail? Or is it the fairest system for society? Let us know what you think by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.